You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine, produced in cooperation with AMDA and sponsored by Forest Pharmaceuticals. Your host is Dr. Eric Tangelos, professor of medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and a certified medical director in long-term care. What medical conditions might contribute to the development of pressure ulcers, and how can these wounds be prevented? Joining us to discuss pressure ulcers in the long-term care setting is Dr. David Thomas, professor of internal medicine and geriatric medicine in the Division of Geriatric Medicine at St. Louis University Health Sciences Center and certified medical director. David, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you. We're going to spend some time together talking about pressure ulcers in long-term care. So how common, first of all, are pressure ulcers in the long-term care settings? Well, Dr. Tangelos, as you know, it depends on how you look at it. For example, pressure ulcers are actually very rare. If you consider all of the people who are admitted to hospitals, all of the people who are in nursing homes, it's actually a very small number that develop pressure ulcers. So from that perspective, it's unusual to develop a pressure ulcer. However, in certain populations, such as the elderly population, pressure ulcers develop at really an alarming rate. Since these are such bad wounds and they take so long to heal, there's an accumulating number of people who have pressure ulcers, even though overall the number is really low. So if you were to walk into a typical skilled nursing home anywhere in the country, 100 beds, how many patients might have pressure ulcers at any one time? It will really depend on the facility and the kind of patients they take. For example, we know that 70% of all ulcers that occur in this country occur in elderly people. We also know that 70% of those ulcers occur in the acute care hospital. So, for example, if you have a Medicare rehabilitation unit and you're seeing patients being transferred on a regular basis from acute care facilities back and forth, recovering from illness, you're going to have a fairly high number of people who have pressure ulcers. That's what we call prevalence. Now, the number of people that develop pressure ulcers in long-term care is actually still relatively small. So if you look at typical numbers, they'll range anywhere from 4% of the population to maybe 20% of the population, again, depending on sort of the case mix. All right. With so many people coming out of the hospital, you're already hinting to our audience really what they need to do next. Let's talk about how to grade and score and document ulcers in the nursing home population. All right. The uh, same score is actually across the board in any population, but it's undergoing at least some theoretical changes. Originally, this was developed by an orthopedic surgeon. It was divided into four stages, and I'd emphasize that the staging system applies only to pressure ulcers. It does not apply to other kinds of wounds, so it would be incorrect, for example, to apply this to a diabetic wound. Now, the four stages are stages one, two, three, and four, and they're based on depth. It doesn't matter how big the wound is. It doesn't matter how bad it looks. It really is the depth. So the question then is, is it very superficial, not breaking the surface of the skin, or does it extend into the dermis, 
which is a stage two, or does it extend into the subcutaneous fat, which is a stage three, or does it break the fascial plane and extend into muscle or bone, which is a stage four? Now, in addition to that, there's been some concern that tissue layers break down at different rates. Muscle tissue is the most common and frequently damaged and goes out well before the skin. So it could be that there is damage which is deep in the tissues that then doesn't erupt or become visible until later. And that's called suspected deep tissue injury, meaning that we think that there is damage in this area, but the skin's intact and we can't see it. So that would be suspected deep tissue injury. Another category that's recently been added is the so-called unstageable. Now, if you cannot see the depth of the wound, then you cannot use the staging system, and so that becomes, by definition, a wound covered, for example, in eschar or covered in scab formation, unstageable because you can't see the bottom of the wound. You had talked about the differential diagnosis and that diabetic wounds are not pressure ulcers as well. How do you go about diagnosing a pressure ulcer versus some other kind of wound? Pressure ulcers are best thought of as a diagnosis of exclusion. What a pressure ulcer is, is the visible evidence of pathological interruption in blood flow to the tissue. So you start by asking yourself, okay, what's going on? For example, if you have a wound that has clear gangrene, it's at the surface of the toes, it's at a point of acrocyanosis, and there are no palpable pulses and it came on quickly, then that wound is likely an arterial wound. If you have a diabetic who has underlying microvascular disease and that patient has a wound that's developed in an area of repetitive trauma, so-called callus formation, then that wound is a diabetic wound. If you have a person who has very superficial wounds on the anterior tibial surface and a history of venous disease, then that wound is a venous ulcer. So if you have excluded the possibility of diminished blood flow and if you have excluded the possibility of diabetes or a possible wound developing in a callus formation, and if this is clearly not in the area of the anterior tibial surface like a venous stasis, then it might be a pressure ulcer. So you ask yourself, is this in an area where there's compression of the soft tissue between the skin surface and a bony prominence? Then, yes, that's pressure. So we would diagnose a pressure ulcer based on those characteristics and the absence of the other characteristics. Now, as you know, that gets a bit complicated because someone will say, well, well, wait a minute, there is pressure in the region of the shoe which is causing this diabetic ulcer. Yes, pressure may occur in other wounds, diabetes, or even in vascular illness, but it's not the etiology of the wound. And so, as you point out, it's very important that we do a careful differential diagnosis. So the causes of, as as you point out, diminished blood flow, what are the clinical situations that we look for that put patients at risk? 
there are a large number of sort of risk instruments. If we sort of walk into a hospital ward, it turns out that nurses in particular and doctors in general are very good at just kind of picking out people and saying, gee, this person looks sick, they're at risk. It turns out that that's about as good as any of the standardized instruments that we picked out. But typically what we're looking for is someone who is immobile, unable to position, who has multiple comorbidities, for example, may have congestive heart failure, may have a hip fracture, may undergo a surgical procedure. Most commonly in hospitals, ulcers occur in orthopedic patients. The incidence is roughly about 26%, meaning about one in four patients who have an orthopedic procedure like a hip replacement develop a pressure sore. About a third of patients who have cardiovascular surgery develop pressure sores. So there's something about this sort of intervention with surgery or type of procedure or anesthesia or things like that that put people at risk of developing pressure sores. I guess the simplest way to think about it is that there are intrinsic and extrinsic factors. Extrinsic factors are things like pressure or the compression of soft tissue against a bone. We sometimes begin to think that, well, that's the only reason, and we ignore the fact that, well, their ejection fraction from cardiovascular disease may be 15%. They're not perfusing. Or it may be that there is a disruption from anesthesia or surgical procedures that's predisposing to pressure sores. So it's a combination, both the things that go on externally and things that go on internally. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine from ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Tangelos, and joining me to discuss pressure ulcers in the long-term care setting is Dr. David Thomas, Professor of Internal Medicine and Geriatric Medicine in the Division of Geriatric Medicine at St. Louis University Health Sciences Center and Certified Medical Director. David, do nutrition and hydration play a role in the development of pressure ulcers? I think that they do, but I think that's actually a more difficult question than one might presume. If you do studies and you look at people who are at risk, people who have impaired nutrition are at higher risk of developing pressure sores. Now, is it the nutrition, which we've often thought of, that's causing this to happen, or is it a sign that this is occurring in a very sick and otherwise impaired population. It turns out that when we do interventional studies looking at various nutritional products or amino acids or proteins or things like that, we see very, very poor results in randomized controlled trials. So I think that the answer to your question is pressure ulcers occur in nutritionally impaired people because those people are impaired by chronic diseases, and nutrition is important because obviously if we do not have a source of nutritional intake, we're going to get worse rather than better, but there's no magic bullet that we can use nutritionally to prevent or to heal pressure sores. Well, on this program, we oftentimes talk about the interdisciplinary and the multidisciplinary teams, and so the next question logically comes up. How do you deploy all of the resources of the care team to help with problems of pressure ulcers? Well, obviously, it's almost a fundamental of geriatric medicine that we work as interdisciplinary team members. 
So this has to start from basically physician awareness. Team building and team leadership may come from any of the interdisciplinary models, but typically you must have on board a physician who's at least aware of the pathophysiological process, a nurse who understands the risk and the caring and the needs that that patient has, along with physical therapy, along with nutritionists, along with bathing and caring for the aides who are daily going to inspect the skin and notify you when there's a problem. It absolutely takes a team to make any dent in this process. Well, I would like to thank my guest from St. Louis University Health Sciences Center, Dr. David Thomas. David, thank you very much for being our guest this week on Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine. A pleasure, Eric. You've been listening to Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine from ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine is produced in cooperation with AMDA and sponsored by Forest Pharmaceuticals. For more information about this or any other ReachMD radio show, please visit ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts. Thank you for listening. After a lifetime of creating memories, there's something that lurks in the darkness. Alzheimer's disease. When it advances, it's hard to slow. And each day that symptoms are ignored, the disease steals a piece of those memories away. To shed the light necessary to get patients the treatment they need, it takes the vigilant eye of a caring physician and the best pharmacotherapy choices available. Visit allscombo.com and listen to a webcast by respected long-term care authority, Dr. Richard Stefanacci of the University of the Sciences in Philadelphia. This webcast will discuss a landmark NIH-sponsored study that supports the rationale for using memantine and an acetylcholinesterase inhibitor in combination. Learn more about a landmark NIH-sponsored study examining combination therapy titled Combination Therapy Offers Benefits for Patients with Alzheimer's Disease in an engaging webcast at allscombo.com. That's A-L-Z-C-O-M-B-O dot com. Namenda, memantine hydrochloride, is indicated for the treatment of moderate to severe Alzheimer's disease. Namenda is contraindicated in patients with known hypersensitivity to memantine hydrochloride or any excipients used in the formulation. The most common adverse events reported with Namenda versus placebo, greater than or equal to 5% and higher than placebo, were dizziness, confusion, headache, and constipation. In patients with severe renal impairment, the dosage should be reduced. For full prescribing information, go to namenda.com.